Hello and welcome to Pythian School of Futures. And today we are turning to the episode four, which is titled Supernormality. And today we're going to speak about that particular aspect of the work of Avenir Institute and of the research that we are carrying out in transdisciplinary, transhistorical and transtemporal space. So without further ado, let's first of all define what supernormality is and why did we feel necessity to introduce a term like that in the uh, conversation and the theoretical field and as well in the discussions about politics and about the state of our society. So first of all, supranormal comes from the combination of the two words, the English word normal, coming from the Latin word norm, and the Latin word supra, which means above. So basically, in order to understand the term etymologically, it's a very easy exercise just to deconstruct it in these two parts. So supranormal is basically being above the norm. Being, but not only above the norm in the spatial hierarchical logic, but just being beyond of what is assumed and what is understood to be normal. So this particular term is important due to a very complicated state of a queer theory in which queer theory is finding itself from our perspective at the moment in both academia, politics, and as well in art. So what exactly problematic we are finding with this term? So first of all, let's dig into more of a history of the term queer and where the queer theory coming from and what is queer theory as it understands itself now and how therefore it differs from the supranormality, from the term that we introduced in a sense of something that's that existing outside of the normative field. Queer theory was born as a joke in the first place in the academic conference in California where the woman scholar Teresa de Laurentiis used the term queer theory as a way of almost mocking the idea of theoretizing and putting in the frame of the theory the idea of otherness, of the idea of weirdness. And funnily enough, the joke was incorporated later as an academic term that started to be used in order to describe and to pinpoint the agenda of the sociological, political, anthropological approach to what is called other, basically, to, and specifically in relation to sexuality and to the sexual preferences, to the gender identity. However, the attitude towards the otherness in that perspective, from the queer perspective, was not only limited by the agenda of the queer theory. The otherness to which queer theory was meant to relate itself was rather much more widespread and dealt with anything that does not find itself fitting the specific borders of the norm. And what sort of norm queer theory is talking about? Certainly the primary agenda of that normative conversation is the agenda, again, of the normative family, of the understanding of what is constituting normal marriage or normal relationship, normal gender appropriation, 
normal pronouns and so on and so on. Normal in that relation is something that is also often finding itself synonymous to the term natural. And the term natural basically is being referred to as something that replicating itself and producing itself outside of the societal deviations. So that's the queer theory therefore started to look at in beginning of 90s and then to the start of 2000s into those particular deviations or those particular differences that are not falling into the frame of the normative association and normative appropriation. So therefore, for example, issues like gay marriage, issues like gay sex, issues like different sexual identities, issues like the third gender and the non-binary association all fell into the field of research of the queer theory. But as the research in that agenda started to progress further, queer theory faced basically as critical theory found itself in 60s and 70s, theorizing its own revolutionary potential and therefore, in a way, castrating its own revolutionary potential, the queer theory found itself in a similar situation by the beginning of 2000s. And another theorist that finds problematic the term queer theory, the Canadian philosopher David Halperin, highlighted the problem with normalization of the queer theory exactly in the agenda and in the area of queer theory wanting to reintroduce itself within the normative scheme instead of trying to revolutionize the norm. While the queer agenda and queer analysis towards the understanding of the norm was first of all directed in and not in reproduction of that norm, but rather in disruption of that norm and denormalizing the institutions like marriage, church, for example, uh, gender identities. Queer theory found itself in the field where it's rather incorporating the new terminology and the new categories within the same format and the same frame of production of the normality. So queer started to become normal in itself. So the identities such as gay identity, lesbian identity, transgender identity, instead of being revolutionary ideas and revolutionary forms of understanding the fakeness of naturalness of the heterosexual marriage and a very clear binary distinction between the man and woman, between the female and male, just added to these categories additional norms. So funnily enough, and in a quite a weird reverse twist, the queer became the other norm. And since that moment of realization of queer basically starting to appropriate itself within the normative field, the struggle was dislocated from actually denormalizing the idea of the norm and leaving the concept of the norm, leaving the concept of natural as the core and focal way of understanding society. Queer theory started rather to incorporate new terminology within this pool of the norm. And that's the radical shift that happened in understanding of the queer theory in 2000s. So that specific problem, the problem of their revolutionizing the potential of the queer theory is in the center and in the core 
of the interest in, of Avenir Institute and introduction of the term supernormal. Because if the queer theory desires at this particular moment to analyze the deviations outside of the normative field and then normalize them, basically make them tolerated and make them accepted, our concept of supernormality does not intend, does not want to see the specific differences and the othernesses being incorporated within that structure of normality, which the queer theory in itself, finding the condition of its presence in politics, academia and arts at this particular moment. So that's the theoretical underpinnings of it. But what does it mean in reality? So we perfectly see what is happening currently at the battlefield for the recognition of the different queer communities in societies like Poland, in Europe, for example, and much beyond Europe, everywhere, this idea of recognition of the queer identity as a normal identity is still the main political struggle of the forces that are fighting for the recognition of those queer communities. The question that we are asking in that perspective, is it the right target, basically? Is that the right agenda and the purpose to normalize the queer agenda within that normative field? Or the agenda should be denormalizing, actually, and denaturalizing the very structure of the society on which it's based. So this is the fundamental question of the supranormal attitude to the queer theory and supranormal attitude to the societal norms, where the phenomena of supranormality, phenomena of difference, are not approached as a new weird and strange things that meant to be understood in terms of normality, but rather seen as something that might come from completely different environment and is not desiring to be incorporated with that structure. And the primary example of such attitude could be, for example, conditions in which the institution of gay marriage find itself now in the places where gay marriage is legal. Gay marriages are now happening, for example, within the Christian churches and within other spiritual and religious institutions, basically normalizing this sort of communions and this sort of differences within the very same set of premises and within the very same set of norms. If that result of that struggle would be presented to activists in 1960s and 1970s and they would be informed that in 40 years the gay marriages would be performed in the churches and would be performed by the rabbis, for example, in specific, I don't know, synagogues and so on, that would be probably... causing quite a controversy among the activists who actually wanted to disrupt the institution of marriage itself instead of being incorporated into the institution of marriage and become a part of the same structure of the biopolitical regulatory framework and the conversion of the institution of the gay marriage into the production of those societal units of the taxpayers, of those nuclear families that are adopting children, that are having basically the very same characteristics and the structures as the normative families that the queer activists in the first place were opposed to, which generally go up further if, again, the nuclear family is approached as this core institution of the societal and state control created, again, in just 
and naturalized as the form of the fundamental norm on which the stability and the prosperity of the society relies on. The incorporation of the queer partnership into that structure makes it just another form of reaffirmation of the normality of that order, of the naturalness of that order. And that order finalized sort of in this metaphor of um, meta-society combined of the families and the whole society therefore being perceived as a nuclear family with a particular leader being a father of a nation and therefore everybody being the children of that father of the nation. So in a weird way, the queer theory and the queer struggle led to the reality within which the queer identity and the recognition of queerness became the investment into the reaffirmation of naturalness of the family and naturalness of the state as the meta-family, basically. And this is a conundrum of the current situation of the queer theory and the core problematics that we highlight by introducing the term supranormality. And the institutions that we would like to see in expression of the ideas in the future of the queer struggle and in the really queer spaces are those spaces and those institutions that are not yet incorporated in that structure and that are not taking the idea of the identity with the agenda of normalizing that identity under the societal structure which are present in the society at the moment and which are guaranteeing its stability without the possible form of the change of it and without the possible suggestion of the alternative form of the societies and alternative utopias. Queer utopia with the current political agenda of the queer politics is impossible. Queer utopia is neutralized through being incorporated into the reality of norm at the moment. So another important difference between the queer theory as it exists now and the supranormality as it's being proposed by the Ibenir Institute is the notion of what exactly category in philosophy the, the difference, the otherness, the strangeness, the eeriness could be aligned with and what sort of categories of those differences should be included into this category of supranormal. Again, as I was telling before, queer theory mostly deals with the agenda of sexual differences, the agenda of the sexual desire and the gender identity as well. And most importantly, visibilization of those identities and incorporation of them into the norm. First of all, we see the supranormality as the discipline that looks at the phenomena. It's a phenomenological discipline. So there were, and all the others that we're looking at are the others that are phenomenological. They are basically appearing not outside of the specific form of the reason and the consequence and not being grown out of stems of the structure in the hierarchies. They are appearing in a way as an anomalous within the history and their anomality proves and serves as the an outstanding opportunity to denaturalize the meta-narratives of history. And those differences and those deviations are not only sexual, they are relating to the any kind of other form of the identities that are defying the norm and are not fitting into the norm of understanding. I'll make some examples. If we take 
the Greek mythology, the figures such as Athena and Dionysus in the Greek mythology. Athena, the masculine woman that is capable of challenging her own father, Zeus, and is capable of carrying the same weaponry as he. In this particular context, basically, of the structure of the Greek mythology, is a queer character, is a supranormal character. But her queerness is being suppressed by her alignment with her father. But at the same time, her supranormal character remains and keeps its potency to be interpreted further in order to disrupt and to rethink the structure of the Olympus. If we take the figure of Dionysus, the effeminate male god, the god of life and the god providing the possibility of enjoyment of life, not only surviving within the struggles of, for existence, and then his further transformation into Jesus and his appearance being used in order to describe Jesus, his travels being used in order to interpret by Christians, interpret and connect the polytheism with monotheism, this normalization of Dionysus into the figure of the Jesus is maybe one of the earliest traceable examples of the process of normalization in society, where the very queer character of Dionysus, who, according to the Greek myth, was quite a polysexual figure, was turned into the asexual, in a way, ascetic prophet of Jesus, that Jesus, whose difference, whose weirdness, whose otherness, was very much incorporated into the structure of understanding the norm by the early fathers of Christianity. Then, beyond the, again, the gender or gender difference or, or beyond the examples of very particular, for example, mythographical deities, let's take some historical characters. The figure of Cleopatra, for example, the figure of the Queen of Egypt, is even in contemporary vernacular culture, thanks to Hollywood, is perceived as a sort of a femme fatale, as a woman that was winning her position in the society and winning her power in Egypt and then losing her power in Egypt in the form of a, almost a soap opera where she plays the role of the actually quite a normal woman, normal in a sense of the normality of perception of the woman as a beautiful woman that uses her beauty as a weapon the only available weapon to her to assume the power position. You've probably seen numerously the famous representation of Cleopatra, for example, by Hollywood and Elizabeth Taylor. But the historical documents tell us that, first of all, Cleopatra was probably not as beautiful as in this femme fatale perspective terms was not as model-looking and was not actually using her beauty, first of all, as the main and primary source of the importance that her figure acquired in the ancient world, and actually was an incredibly strategic, smart political thinker who actually acquired the position that she acquired through playing a very smart male game, normalized male game. So... At the moment of the breakout of the war between the Emperor Augustus and Cleopatra and Marcus Antonius, who is Mark Antony, who coupled with her in order to acquire the domination in Rome, the portrayal of her as femme fatale is most probably a result of the Roman political propaganda that just was trying to depower her otherness, to depower the 
idea that basically women could be as smart as a leader of the huge empire, as Cleopatra was a leader of Egypt. So therefore, the power of her supranormality, and her supranormality in that sense was her creating the norm outside of the understanding of what normal woman in Egypt or Roman Empire is supposed to do, was set up outside of the grounds of the possibility of understanding of that normal structure that was perceived by the Romans and was perceived by Egyptians at that moment. And her power, again, this power of the difference that she was presenting, was then normalized by the Roman propaganda in order to, again, re-emphasize the power and the importance of preservation of the norm and the character, this normalized character of woman as a domesticated entity or as a spouse of a great leader, for example, as in case of Cleopatra and Caesar, who some particular moment goes rook using her natural, normal powers, so seductive powers of femme fatale, to acquire the position of power. The whole interpretation of the history then is structured around that perception of the normality of Cleopatra. So Cleopatra could not have been actually a smart political thinker because that would just disrupt the idea of what normal woman is. The same situation and the same interesting case is the Elizabeth I, the Queen of England, who needed to normalize herself. To those of you who are unfamiliar with her character, she is considered to be the queen of the golden age of England. And she was famous for remaining the virgin queen, for associating herself with the idea of purity and virginity and with the idea of transcending the normality of her female gender, because she as well was sitting in a throne that was meant for a king. And her refusal to marry, and her actually strategic conscious decision of avoiding the marriage, needed to be not only justified, but needed to be compensated through her own strategic attitude and gestures. And that gesture was basically her marrying England as her man, in a way, marrying England as the representation of fatherland. So she went for this compromise in order to pacify the desire for that normality from the surrounding her context of the royal courts and also of her subjects of the population of England. However, Despite the fact that she normalized herself by announcing that she has a body of a weak and feeble woman, but she has a heart and stomach of a king. It's a direct quote from one of her famous speeches, the Golden Speech. This sort of unity of male and female, in a way, in her was her strategy to incorporate herself into the normality, just again as the strategy of the gay marriage that I was describing before, to incorporate itself into the normality via allowing and, first of all, demanding the gay marriages being performed in the Christian churches, and then actually celebrating the fact that could happen. But the question again here is very much the same. Does this gesture of, for example, Elizabeth I claiming that she has a heart and stomach of a king, queer in a way, and diversify the idea of power, or is it rather another investment into the idea that only the king can have a heart strong enough 
to rule the political entity. In the same way, is it only the church who is legally and legitimately and in a way symbolically can create an institution strong enough to hold the connection between people? And is it always meant to be two people? And is it supposed to be called marriage, that union in the first place? And diversification of the term actually re-emphasizes the term in itself. So historicity of that question is another very, very important context for us in research of the supranormality and in the idea of how we can rethink the necessity to normalize the society beyond those structures of differences that are always present and are always richly surrounding the idea of the society around us. Another big problem with the attitude in the normalization of the difference, again, as with a gay marriage, for example, or in the way of a queer power becoming incorporated and becoming normal, is the problem that those these attitudes from the side of the society, whenever they even are positively inclined, so for example, when the gay marriage is becoming recognized and the gay marriage is becoming performed, in the space of the heterosexual marriage, it's not actually taken as equal in that space. It's not equalization of that marriages. All the slogans such as love is love and so on and so on, they are presuming to be equalizing. But actually, the first rhetoric that is directed to the recognition of that similarity is the rhetoric of toleration. So the first demand that is given by the queer agenda and any other otherness agendas are the agenda that you should recognize my existence and you should tolerate my presence in a way. But we find this toleration is the first step towards incorporation of the difference into the norm. So we have within the problem of the attitude of the queer theory to interpretation of both history and the political struggles of today, these three stages of engagement of queer agenda with the norm, of which first is the toleration of difference, second, incorporation of difference into the norm, and then third stage, becoming the norm in itself. This is basically for now in the political attitude towards the queerness and towards the othernesses is seen as, as something most desirable for the difference and for the otherness in a sense of the future and becoming a part of the societal fabric. And that toleration, incorporation and further normalization basically does not question the very structure of the way we are forming the society. And the most interesting ontological question within the concept of supranormality for us is whether we can live not in the norm-based society, but in a phenomena-based society, in a society where we are not meant to create those strict form of the norms and where we can find some other ways to regulate the relations between the societal agents. And whether we always need to find some sort of a normative filter, however rich this filter is and however welcoming this filter of normality is, whether it includes the queer agenda or it doesn't include the queer agenda, it still creates a specific borders of what is meant to be normative. And it specifically creates the border outside of which all the deviations are being pushed 
So therefore, the normative society is always penetrated by the problem and by the struggle for recognition by the new others that are coming in and and that are inevitably claiming the space within this normative environment. Therefore, we are dealing with some sort of a perpetual societal game that has no end. And the society remains perpetually and permanently oppressive and incomplete. So that's the question that we ask. Can we actually think in a supranormal terms when we're actually thinking about the characters in history like Cleopatra or Elizabeth I, for example, or the communities like gay community or lesbian community or trans community and so on, not in terms of their difference from the norm and not in terms of incorporation of them as a group or as individuals into what we tolerate and into what we are making normal as well. Rather looking at them through the phenomenological lens and looking at them as the societal sort of experimentation agenda would look at, for example, as imagine if we would try to, to structure the society around that particular group as being the central norm of the society and how the society would look like in that way. So if, for example, the heterosexuals would be oppressed, what they would be required actually to be tolerated within the institution, for example, the transsexual community is creating. These questions are incredibly important to be asked and they're sometimes being asked within the art community and they're asked within the art projects and within specific artistic practices, but they are looked at as a sort of an impossible utopia as a sort of a, or dystopias, if we're talking about heterosexual community. But, you know, in a sense of the justice, and I might sound a bit harsh in that sense, but that's actually the, probably the conversation that should be happening in parallel with the agenda of Black Lives Matter, in terms of the oppression of the others and the oppression, for example, of the queer community, the period of the time that took for the queer community to be tolerated first and now just being recognized is actually justifying the necessity in the sense of the uh, this imaginary operation to imagine the society that would not have had that norm of the heterosexuality. It justifies the fundamental questions in history on the nature, for example, of other ills of the world, such as imperialism, such as the idea of introducing the cultural hegemony or the specific accumulation of the soft power, basically other subjects that we have already either discussed in the previous episodes or will further discuss in the next episodes. So what is very important in that sense with the concept of supranormality that's very much integrated in the whole societal fabric. It's not the localized issue that somewhat deals with the recognition of the other. It's actually a very much a fundamental question that deals with the essential questions of possibility of imagining another society, not the society built on the idea of the concept such as nation, such as state, for example, such as nuclear family, without rethinking the idea of the norm itself, we can't really arrive to the truly alternative form of the perception of the society. And uh, in terms of the uh, normative understanding of retributive justice, for example, or compensatory justice, we theoretically should have some sort of a queer imperial age in which the heterosexuals should be as oppressed as the queer communities were oppressed. The same as maybe we should just 
do a social experiment of the compensatory justice towards the black community and enslave all white people, for example, in a specific societies for a period of time, just to understand the difference in this and the difference in perception of the struggles for toleration and incorporation. Of course, I'm speaking here hypothetically, but at the same time, almost seriously, because how else you would be able to pass through this idea that the true liberation comes not from the recognition and incorporation, but comes from the understanding of the agency of the other. And it comes as well from not the negotiation with the other from the perspective and through the filter of the norm, but through the removal of that filter of the norm. And basically starting that conversation from the blank slate of equality. And that blank slate of equality, unfortunately, is being destroyed by the legitimation of this incorporative conversation with the queer community or with any other otherness community when we speak about the, again, normalization of queerness. So that's the way and the strategy of the supernormal in general and the supernormality in the work of the Institute. We would like to see the idea of the others, the, the solidarity of the othernesses, both trans-historically, trans-culturally, but and trans-temporally, of course. And the othernesses, such as, for example, the difference within the and deviation from the norm, they are not limited by a very specific set of problems and a very specific set of differences. And even this categorization and this creation of the different packs of othernesses, for example, the feminist struggle separate from, I don't know, queer struggle, the struggle for the indigenous communities, a representation power separately, completely from those two struggles that I was talking about before, the gender identity struggle being separated from the sexual liberation movement and so on. All of those differences and all of those deviations as they perceived by the different categories of norm, need to create the platform for solidarity. And basically that solidarity of the otherness from our perspective is exactly what can provide the opportunity and the chance for the alternative form of rethinking the society, not from the perspective of fighting for crystallization of the norms and reinstitutions of the norms, but rather seeing a question in there has no yet a particular terminological answer, what comes after norm? And will we search for the new norm or shall we search for the new and then three dots, something else, some other form of emphasizing and straightening the idea of communal and the idea of togetherness that is not defined and not filtered through the lens of the uh, specific dominative idea of the natural, of the normal, and of the structural as the form of the completely non-alternative existence. There are other alternatives, and the supranormality of this multiplicity of phenomena in history, in contemporaneity, and in the possible futures is the proof that this richness is present with us this uh, here every day. So in that sort of sense, we invite all the others to join together the front of the otherness that should not fight for the structuring itself and for recognition itself within the existing norm, but should fight against the norm as being the norm in itself, <laughs> the norm as being something that is naturalized and that is presumed as the only desirable form of existence.